So uh, your points, I would, I'm working on getting them all in. Um, I, I just double check everything and make sure I get everything done correctly. So I've been doing little bits here and there. By Friday, I will have everybody's scores in. So some of you may see these scores for like gestational age and other people haven't yet, especially like Wendy students. I know that they're there and I will get those in. So, so don't panic. I'm kind of like a turtle at this time of year. I'm slow, but I'm steady. So um, the other thing, I know I brought it up last week, but Billings Clinic onboarding, they're really um, gonna hold hard and fast to everyone getting things done. And my understanding is there's a change now that if one person in a class doesn't do their modules by the time they're supposed to, they're not gonna let the whole class on board or something like that. So they're using the power of peer pressure. So again, just be sure to get them done. I know it's a pain and it just always, it's part of the reason I'm happy I don't do clinicals there. So I feel your pain. Um, but also just as a reminder, you don't want to do stuff too early because my understanding is Castle Branch doesn't open till the 15th and evidently there was a student, I don't know who it was, tried to or did their Castle Branch too early and then had to pay for a drug screen all over again. So you'll be getting an email about all this from Patty so just really pay attention to those dates. Um, I know it's a headache. It's the end of the year, it's the holidays and we all want to not think about that kind of stuff. But anyway, and then this last pitch is as you're leaving this course and moving on, um, I hope you all have fond memories of OB. But anyway, I hope some of you who feel called and also would like to earn a little extra money will think about being a tutor for the course. You can get paid about 10 to $12 an hour and um, there's a real need. Or if you feel that you could be a tutor for previous courses that you've taken in the College of Nursing, please think about it. So I'm, I'm really trying to recruit some, some tutors. Um, I think tutors have a really valuable role in the college because, you know, as an instructor, as a nurse, as you know, an older adult, I, I have a certain mindset and view of the world. I try to explain things well, but I also know that sometimes hearing it from a peer or from someone new, they may say the same thing, but it helps that knowledge to click or it helps it to make sense. So I really see tutors as a, a very valuable resource. So I hope you'll think about that, particularly if you're looking to pick up some extra funds for next semester. So now I'm gonna see if we can get the get going here.
that is out there. Um, you're going to see more and more of it because, again, when we talked the other day about the numbers of adults that are living into their 90s, even to age 100, I mean, you know, over the weekend, you probably all heard that George Bush died. Um, probably a lot of you weren't even born yet when he was president, I'm guessing, yeah. But um, the cool thing about George Bush was when he turned 90 years old, his, he went skydiving on his birthday. I thought that was pretty cool. So um, anyway, you know, just a few facts about Alzheimer's. You know, you can see how many people have dementia now. Well, we're already, you know, we're not at 2030 yet, but it, it's only going to increase. And some of that's due to, you know, more adults are living longer. But a lot of what we know about Alzheimer's prevention, like heart disease, it's related to possibly lifestyle. Um, did any of you participate in the Alzheimer's walk this fall? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so some of you, so you're aware of it. And they do them in every community. Um, I'm guessing probably some of you have, you know, Alzheimer's or dementia possibly in grandparents or other family members. So, you know, it's something that a lot of us are going to deal with. Right now, there's not a specific test for Alzheimer's. There is one, uh, uh, there, but there's always the, the buts, you know, the yeah buts, yeah but. So there is one exception. If, if you have what's considered early onset Alzheimer's, so people in their you know, early 50s, uh, it's a family history, there is a specific genetic mutation they can test for. So there is that test. Now again, that goes back to a lot of, you know, the philosophy about genetic testing is, why would I want to do that if I can't do anything about it? Because as you know, we don't have a, a cure, we don't have a lot of great treatments. Well, it allows you to plan ahead if you know that that's in your family. Um, actually, I listened to a, a really good podcast about that over the weekend. I think it was on This American Life, talking about um, a guy who'd been put in the criminal justice system and, you know, they thought he was just, you know, an honorary, no good person and come to find out he had a form of hunting. Um, you know, but it took some sleuthing on the part of the, 
the people who did the podcast. But anyway, so <clears throat> right now you can do the genetic test, look for the rare form, but otherwise what we do know is, and it's got cut off there, but um, what's good for the heart is probably good for the brain. So again, like I said, by the end of the semester, you'll have heard me say diet and exercise way too many times. Um, but again, I don't mean a, a deprivation diet or a crash diet. In fact, I listened to a talk about that over the weekend too. And you know, again, Mediterranean diet, eating that well-balanced diet, what we do know is lots of fruits and vegetables. You know, so the whole my plate philosophy or the rainbow eating, that sort of thing, is really the best thing for Alzheimer's prevention, trying to keep um, cholesterol down, getting plenty of exercise, um, certainly, like so many things, trying to manage stress. You know, I don't know that we can reduce anybody's stress for them. That's really not our job as the nurse. It's to strategize with our patients and help them learn how, how can they manage it better? How can they um, mitigate it a bit? Okay, so we're gonna switch gears, um, which always seems kind of, this is an odd group of things to put together. It just all gets thrown in at the end, but again, infertility. And just so you know, um, for many years I worked for a doc. I managed his infertility patients. It happens to be one of my nursing certifications, which is kind of this weird one out there, reproductive endocrinology and infertility nursing. So it's a big mouthful. I loved it when I did it. Um, I still see patients that I took care of um, who went on to have children, some who didn't. But it's important to understand the definition of infertility. And so that's why, that's my first point. It's defined as no conception after one full year of appropriately timed intercourse. And again, you know, think back to what you learned back probably in biology, um, you know, day one of a menstrual cycle is when we start counting when is it appropriate to get pregnant. And usually it's about day 14 to day 16 of a menstrual cycle. So uh, oftentimes we would see patients who sometimes the problem was the partner worked out of town and they weren't, you know, hitting that time of, of maximum fertility. However, if someone is over the age of 35, again, advanced maternal age, we don't want those patients to necessarily wait the one full year because, again, the window is narrowing of their time when they can successfully conceive. So if someone is 35 or older, and hasn't gotten pregnant in six months, then she really, she or she and her partner should be um, seeking some evaluation and getting a treatment plan if, if necessary. Um, I often get asked, or I used to get asked, you know, was, was there an age cutoff for men? And we used to think, well, no, because, you know, you look at a little, um, you know, some of these older um, actors in Hollywood that, you know, sometimes they're on their second or third wife and have, you know, kids that are 40 and then they have a two-year-old. Um, so certainly, yes, men are able to father children for a longer time in their life. 
However, oftentimes about age 50, either uh, the quality of the sperm that are able to fertilize an egg decrease, or sperm counts decrease, or oftentimes um, they've developed some other health problems that preclude them from even having intercourse. So, um, you know, we usually say 35 for women, 50 for men. I just want to stress too, you really need to develop a cause of infertility before you develop a treatment plan. And the reason I say that is, um, I, you know, I'm not going to go into great detail. I mean, we could talk, you know, for a week about infertility treatment. But I have seen patients who were given fertility drugs um, by maybe their general doctor, and actually the patient had blocked fallopian tubes. So she was never going to get pregnant. So it really is important to get a, a, a good evaluation. And, um, you know, now this is my bit for patient advocacy. Patients really need to seek out physicians or places that do this all the time. It's a very um, specialized area of medicine, and not just any OBGYN is always good at, at dealing with it. So, um, you know, I have said to patients over the years, and this is true in any, anything, you know, if you're not getting the treatment you need, it's okay to get a second opinion. It's a, it's a really good idea. So, anyway, um, you know, so evaluation, there's a whole lot of information on there. I just really want you to appreciate, in women it can be due to an ovarian dysfunction. They may not be ovulating regularly or irregularly. Um, they can have uterine anomalies. And, did anyone take care of the patient? I'm trying to remember. It seems like we had some this fall where uh, patients had a uterine septum. Yeah, that was your patient, wasn't it, Katie? Yeah, and had she had surgery on that, or did they just let her get pregnant? So they didn't even know she had it until after she was pregnant, which is weird because she had two other babies. Okay. And then it caused the Okay, so yeah, there's probably a whole lot more to that that we didn't even know about. But sometimes it's known as a Mullerian anomaly. You don't have to necessarily remember that, but sometimes women actually can have a septum, just like you have a septum in your heart, that develops in the uterus, or they're born with it. And that's right, they may not even know. Um, oftentimes how patients find out is they can't get pregnant or they can't stay pregnant. And by the way, I, I meant to make that point. Another cause of infertility is three or more miscarriages in a row. And we call those patients recurrent or habitual aborters. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that to a patient because nobody really wants that, you know, thinking of themselves that way, but that is the term. Recurrent pregnancy loss is a better term. And sometimes patients are able to conceive, but the egg is not able to implant or she can't hold on to the pregnancy for various reasons. So again, that's why I say you really need to get a cause before you get a treatment plan and help this patient or this couple. Um, so tubal, they may have tubal blockage. Usually it's due to an undiagnosed or untreated um, sexually transmitted illness such as chlamydia or gonorrhea. 
most women oftentimes don't realize they have that unless their partner divulges it or it's severe enough that women for you know lower abdominal or pelvic pain it's diagnosed that way so again that goes back to all those lectures you ever did about having safe sex um, peritoneal usually if it's out in the peritoneum or it can be uterine tubal things like endometriosis where the lining of the end of the uterus the endometrium has somehow gotten outside of the uterus and the thing about endometriosis is you can have a little bit and it can cause infertility. Other women can have a whole lot and they're still able to get pregnant. So it's probably not just a structural thing but a chemical reaction to what's going on. In the literature, you know, uh, when I worked for the OB doc, he'd get these you know, medical journals on a regular basis and in the back section of one there was always these like odd cases that you know the, the fun stuff we all love to hear about and read about and there have been examples of um, endometriosis on the lung it had migrated to that or there was one where it had migrated to the brain um, so you know fortunately these things don't happen very often but they make for very interesting reading um, but you know endometrial tissue is hormonally responsive and so when she is going through a monthly cycle and her body is responding to the hormonal signals from the ovary and gets the signal that it's time to menstruate because a pregnancy didn't occur well that tissue doesn't know that it's not inside the uterus anymore and so wherever it is it will bleed and that is what can cause the scarring and the pain and the difficulty. And so again, think about if you had it up on your lung or up in your head, you're really gonna have problems besides not getting pregnant. But again, those are real rare things that you don't hear about. Um, another cause, of course, can be nutritional deficit. Um, if someone is severely underweight, they may not be able to conceive. Um, likewise, very obese women may not be able to get pregnant easily. Sometimes when uh, glucophage or metformin first came on the market, um, women who were significantly obese had insulin resistance, so they were probably what we would term pre-diabetic or possibly an undiagnosed type 2 diabetic. We saw those patients being put on metformin some of them were dropping, you know, 20, 30 pounds and getting pregnant. And so, you know, we were saying, you know, this drug was being marketed for treatment of diabetes, but actually, in a sense, it was functioning as a, a fertility drug. So, um, you know, sometimes you'll see, not just in OB, obviously, drugs, you, you know, you find out these other unintended side effects that turn out to be a beneficial thing, and so then the drug gets gets used for you know off those off-label uses um, certainly thyroid disorders and I used to say those were kind of the easy ones because someone may not have realized she was hypothyroid got it checked came in got her thyroid under control started having regular menstrual cycles again and was able to conceive um, or you know polycystic ovary syndrome um, which really is a metabolic disorder. It's not just an OB disorder. So women with 
polycystic ovary syndrome. We don't spend much time on it in this class, and we probably should, but the hallmarks are they, they have irregular ovulation, irregular menstrual cycles, they usually have difficulty getting pregnant, they often have problems with weight gain, and those women especially are at higher risk for type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And again, the best treatment for PCO is the famous diet and exercise. Um, oftentimes those patients are also placed on oral contraceptives, not for contraception, but to regulate their cycles. So, in men, um, they're a little more straightforward sometimes. Sometimes it's a structural problem. So, men can have um, a varicocele, which is the varicose vein in the scrotum, and that can impede um, the passage of, of sperm. So, you know, that again, that's a surgical fix. Visit to the urologist, a surgical fix, that often takes care of it. Um, sometimes it's, it's hormonal. You, you do see that. Um, I have seen men placed on um, some oral fertility drugs to up their sperm production. Um, exposures to STDs that can cause scarring, as, as in women, but you don't see that as often. But really what we get concerned about in men is, is um, exposure to hazards, so chemicals at work, um, certainly anything radioactive or nuclear is not good for gonads in either men or women. Um, poor nutrition, obesity. I have anti-sperm antibodies, but actually that's, women can form those. And you will see times where women have one partner and they've never been able to get pregnant with that partner, or they had recurrent pregnancy loss, and then they get a new partner and they're able to successfully conceive. Now, if someone was in that type of a relationship, I, I, I as a nurse, I, I'm gonna kind of make a little joke. I wouldn't tell them we need to go get a new partner, but um, so it's something they're reacting and they're, they're just not, a, they're not able to conceive together. Um, sometimes some men have a lot of defective sperm. So if you look at sperm counts, when you get the, the lab report, you know, it should be, you know, we should have like 150 to 400,000 sperm in one ejaculate. So if they have a lower count or, and all men produce a certain number of sperm that are immature or abnormal, Sometimes if that's the, the one that fertilizes the egg, that will cause a miscarriage. But if they have large numbers of that, then there may be perhaps a genetic problem. Something, or, you know, again, perhaps this man has been exposed to some hazards that <coughs> cause some, some mutations. Um, for some men, they're not able to have intercourse. They have problems with libido or, um, you know, they're not able to sustain it, you know, either get or sustain an erection. And, you know, it's just, you know, basic biology. We need that to happen in order for um, pregnancy to occur. However, I grew up reading Ann Landers. I don't know if anybody reads Ann Landers. It's how I learned a 
whole lot about the world and about sex in general, because I can tell you my parents' generation did not talk about sex. Um, but there was a, you know, many letters to Ann Landers of young ladies who did get pregnant without penetration occurring, and actually, yes, that can happen. So anyway, but I'm not talking to 13-year-olds, so I don't think I need to go into more detail. Anyway, um, you know, the testing that should be done, it really depends on the history you get from the couple. Um, because it's expensive, it's time consuming, it can be a real emotional roller coaster. And the other thing is a lot of times insurance will not cover infertility testing or treatment. Because a lot of insurance companies will say it's not, you know, you don't have to have a baby to maintain your health. Now, you know, those of us who worked in the, in the field often argued against that. But it's, it's really shaped um, over the years that I worked how we did things. And so that's why, again, often, if you're working in this area as the nurse, you, you'd get a very thorough history, and that will help um, guide what should happen. And really, what's the final outcome that the patient desires? Because, you know, we now live, you know, we just talked about it in China last week, you know, the whole thing with the CRISPR babies. And by the way, I don't know if you saw, there was a big conference this week, and boy, have the, you know, the geneticists of the world, they've really come down on that guy. And, and you know, China, I think the university is going to boot him. So I'm sure that the final word is not in on that. But again, we are at a point in, in our culture or in our world where we can do a whole lot to help people achieve pregnancy. Um, I have seen patients get pregnant through a procedure. It was really cool when it first came on board. It was known as an ICSI procedure. And there, there's a long, I could give you that, but I'm not going to use it. We'll just, and basically what it means is they take a very, powerful microscope and they take a single sperm in a in a very fine needle and under the microscope use the poke into the egg and use that one sperm to fertilize that egg. And patients have gone on to get pregnant and have have a baby. So as I said there's a lot of high tech stuff but it's really important to find out from the couple what are they comfortable doing. You know there's a, we all have, um, um, I don't know, a cultural norm that we grew up with, what we're comfortable with. And as a couple, they need to decide how far do they want to take this. Because literally, I've seen people take out a second mortgage on their house to try to achieve pregnancy. So, so I think I, the point I'm trying to make is you really need a supportive medical team, physicians, nurses, to to guide you through the process. But, you know, women, you want to get a really thorough, um, you know, physical exam, lifestyle assessment, you know, determine the testing. Same with men. Men often see a urologist who treats them, and then they may work together, or sometimes in larger medical centers, and Billings has just kind of dipped its toe into it, having a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, they, for a while, I don't know, but for a while, Billings, they were having a reproductive endocrinologist who traveled in here and they could do in vitro here. And I know in 
Bozeman, I think they were able to do it there for a while. Prior to that, patients had to travel. Um, when I worked in the clinic, we managed everything up until right before the, the egg retrieval was gonna happen at mid-cycle, and then our poor patients would either have to hop on the plane or get in the car and be in Seattle by the next morning. So we took what was already a really stressful procedure and just added on a whole lot more. So, so as I said, I know Billings Clinic was doing it for a while. I don't know if that person is still coming in and, and doing it. But again, um, it's a very specialized area, so I don't want to spend too much time on it because probably a lot of you are not going to do this. But you may deal with this in your own life, either yourselves, I hope not, or possibly friends or relatives. Um, again, I just listed, and I kind of went through this all before, um, just to highlight, you know, uncontrolled diabetes sometimes can affect fertility. So again, if you know someone's a diabetic, let's be looking at what's their control. What's it been like? You know, now we're getting into not only that preconception planning, but pre-preconception, pre I guess. Um, yeah, PCO, sometimes it's genetic problems. Um, CAH is congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, we don't see a lot of it. It's just an example. And again, it, it got cut off, but advanced maternal age, so 35 or older. I didn't have it on here, but if you've got someone who smokes, we also encourage them to stop. It's not going to help their fertility. And certainly, if they achieve a pregnancy, we don't want that risk factor in the mix. Uh, again, uh, males, I think I, I went through all of that. Again, you know, careful diagnosis, good rapport with the provider. This is an area where patients have a lot of responsibility put on them because they're always needing to call, you know, it's day such and such in my cycle because an infertility workup, you can't always do it all in one month. Certain tests are timed according to where she's at in her menstrual cycle and you don't always do everything in one month. So, so that's why, again, going back to that age 35, it can take two or three months to determine what the exact cause is some, in some people. So it's important to get the patients understanding why they need to call um, and that they feel comfortable. This is an area I want to emphasize you know, to me, it was, I, I loved all the science about it. You know, I supervised the lab draws and the ultrasounds and all that was going on. But it was important to remember that for patients, infertility is a real emotional roller coaster. And, you know, we're, we're coming on to the holidays, and I can tell you that for a lot of patients, it was really difficult, you know, to go to a, a gathering and have somebody ask me, oh, when are you two going to have a baby? You know, because nobody wants to talk about their sex life at, at uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really important as a nurse to be that caring, supportive presence. But also, as I said, if people are not getting results, they need to go on to the next specialist or someone new. Get that second, second opinion. Um, you know, drugs, we have oral... Um, fertility drugs, there's injectable fertility drugs. We could, again, as I said, I could spend a whole week on that. We don't need to in this plate, in this setting. 
Um, some patients choose artificial insemination either with the husband's sperm or the partner's sperm bypassing the cervix and doing uh, insemination directly into the, the uterus or um, in vitro um, or artificial insemination with donors. And interesting thing about that, I just heard a podcast about that um, a few weeks back. Now there's websites where um, people who know they were born as the result of a sperm donor have been able to go on and there was a, um, I think it was a young woman and she now has 23 half siblings that she has located because her mother used a sperm donor who had obviously been used a lot. So um, it leads to some interesting dynamics. There's actually children's books written to help children understand if they were born by a, a sperm donation. So as I said, it's a very interesting, fascinating area, but it can bring up a lot of moral quandaries. So um, it's one of those that um, honestly, I, as I got older, I thought, well, just because we can do this, should we? And I ask myself that about a lot of things in life. So anyway. Okay, so as I said, uh, appropriately timed intercourse with no lubricants. That is really important. You know, all those, like the KY, his and hers, I don't know if you've ever seen those. Uh, while they might do a whole lot for the, the romance aspect, they can block the passage of sperm. So um, that's important that people know that. Avoid hazards for male. And what I mean by that is um, because of the anatomy of men, there is a reason why their testicles are placed outside their body, because they need a lower temperature. So therefore, hot tubs are not good. Um, truck drivers, you know, anybody who's in a profession where they sit all day, that's not good. Um, men who ride bicycles a lot, like these professional bike racers, the, the pressure of the, the uh, that hard bike seat on the scrotum, for some men it can actually cause some nerve issues, which can lead to problems with erection or um, decreased sperm counts. So as I said, sometimes that's why it's important to get a, a, a good history of, of what's going on in their life, because sometimes it's, it's these easy changes that we can do. Um, intrauterine insemination, that's where you use a partner's uh, designated semen sperm and insert it directly in the uterus or donor insemination in vitro. Sometimes surgery is required either in the man or the woman. Um, some couples will you know decide we're going to do this for one year and then <coughs> we're going to adopt a baby or we will then know we've done everything up to whatever point they're comfortable and then they're going to choose to remain childless. And so as a result of that, I try really hard, you know, I, I, it, I used to get asked a lot when I was a young bride, you know, when are you two going to have a baby? Well, number one, it's not really anybody else's business. It really isn't. But, and I know people just, you know, mean it to, you know, they're, they're excited because we all love babies. <laughs> but um, it's just something to be aware of that, you know, and, and there are people who've chosen for other reasons 
they just know that they don't want to parent children and I am totally okay with it. But I think the big thing I want to just point out is please be aware that for patients undergoing infertility, they're also dealing with the grief process. And if you think back to when we had the loss and grief talk, in a sense, even though these patients haven't lost a baby or they may have had numerous early pregnancy losses, in a sense, it's the death of, of, of dreams of their future, things that they had thought of that they see not happening now. And so, and certain um, times of the year it can be more acute, you know, as, as the parents came that day, talked about maybe the anniversary of their pregnancy loss or their baby's death, or in this case, holidays, or, you know, having to see certain people that they know are gonna, you know, bring up this issue. So, so again, as the nurse, um, I just always try to be really supportive um, to my patients and, and know that that was gonna be a hard time for them. So let's go and talk about neonatal abstinence. Man, I went through that in a hurry. Do you have any questions about any of that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
prescription opiates. Um, in the last few years, you know, um, as a whole, we've all gotten zeroed in on the problem with, with overuse or overprescribing of opioid medications. So, you know, morphine, Percocet, um, those are, you know, probably the biggies, um, but certainly others. Um, barbiturates, that's another one. Uh, drugs like Fioracet, that's prescribed quite a lot for headaches, like recurrent headache pain. You used to see it prescribed a lot for that. Um, Amitol, that's an old drug, but um, uh, again, heroin, as you know, there's a real resurgence of heroin in the country. The coasts especially, it's, it's arriving in Billings, and the other one, even since I created this lecture in the last year or two, is uh, fentanyl from China. 
is a huge problem. And the problem with the fentanyl that's out on the street now is it's a lot more potent. It's being manufactured, um, they think, from China, or I, I guess from China. And so that's why we're seeing a real uptick in deaths. Again, you know, podcasts will tell you it's amazing what I learned when I'm listening to those while I'm washing the dishes. <laughs> you are already into podcasts, man. <laughs> I've learned a lot. We could probably do the, your entire nursing school by a podcast, but then you wouldn't get to see me every week. So <laughs> anyway, I'm glad I got you to laugh. Um, yeah, how I got on podcasts, if you haven't heard me say this, I broke my arm a couple years ago and had to have surgery, and I could not do anything. So I sat out on the patio all summer, me and the dog, and listened to podcasts. Anyway, um, but yeah, so the problem is there's fentanyl, and it's a lot more potent, and people are combining it with other things, and that's why we've really seen this rise in opioid deaths. And over the weekend, I actually was listening to a talk on this, and one of the highest rates of, of where this is occurring is in men age 45 to 65. So, um, and they, they had some theories as to what's going on with that, that group but certainly something to be aware of. So, and you may see people placed on, you know, drugs as part of a drug treatment program, you know, methadone or Subutex. So again, we don't want to withdraw those drugs when mom is pregnant, but the in, we need to know that she's taking them. Um, you know, alcohol, nicotine, another drug class that I did not list here and I'm going to add it is SSRIs. And we have a lot of, you know, women that are on those medications. And, you know, I can tell you that when those first came on the market, you know, they were considered safe to use in pregnancy. Now um, we know that there can be some risk to the infant. And so, it, again, it's a careful discussion of risks versus benefits. Certainly, um, we know that pregnancy is a time of a lot of emotional upheaval, can be for some women. Hormonal changes can cause, you know, a lot of emotional issues. And if she's got some underlying mental health issues and is now pregnant, it may not be in her best interest to, to discontinue those medications. But again, we need to know that. Um, and not every infant who's exposed to these substances is going to react to them or have withdrawal symptoms. Because again, if you think back to every chart you read, you probably, a lot of you had patients that perhaps, you know, used alcohol or maybe not alcohol, but smoked, you know. We're still trying to, we can't get every pregnant woman to quit smoking, okay. So, but not every baby had adverse effects that we saw. Um, not every, you know, we see a lot of women, as I said, on SSRIs, not every infant reacts adversely. So it's just something, again, we need to know that and then anticipate and hopefully um, we won't have those problems. Obviously, higher levels of whatever the infant's been exposed to is going to cause more symptoms of withdrawal, and we'll talk about that. And for some reason, I've lost my screen again, so now I'm gonna turn around and try to get to my next slide. Okay, so is that, can you guys, will you guys have this information? I, I would try to make it bigger. I had two big last time, 
not big enough next time. Maybe I'll do one more lecture and it'll be just right. No, I'm, I'm teasing you. No, Goldilocks and the three bears. Okay. I'm glad I get a few chuckles. All right, so um, the rates are only increasing and that was the reason why I developed this lecture is every semester I would have students tell me that coming in that that was one thing they thought they'd really struggle with. And that is appropriate. I still struggle with that. In fact, every so often, you know, I'll, it happened um, last semester, there was just a little tiny, cutest little baby and was born into not a great family situation and I, you know, there's, I'm, I'm still a mom way deep down and I thought, you oh, know, you might fit in my bag, I'll just take you home. <laughs> but they don't, they don't let me do that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's only increasing every year and it's across all, all income levels, all demographic groups, all areas of the country. I will say though, I wanna give credit to, I believe it's a group of nurses I think it's West Virginia. I can't remember. It's in the that southeast corner of the country. We're the ones that really recognized this early, seeing it in pregnant women and seeing these babies come into NICU. And they led the charge to really develop the treatment programs that we now see for infants. And I, I need to get that um, written down and give those nurses credit. So, you know, anytime you ever say to yourself, I'm just the nurse. Please remember, nurses have changed the world in so many ways, so don't ever say that to yourself. Um, and also, I just wanna point out, St. B's now is considered a center of excellence for treatment of neonatal abstinence. And actually, just about two weeks ago, the governor of Montana signed a bill or allocated a huge amount of money, I don't remember if it was like $3 million or something like that, to encourage treatment programs for pregnant women to get, get help. Um, you know, we're sitting, what, right next to Rimrock Foundation? And I can tell you that in years past, it's been very, very difficult if you identify a pregnant woman needing drug treatment. A lot of places do not want to take pregnant women and it's very, very difficult to get help. So um, yeah, I think it still is. And you know, St. V's has certainly led the initiative. I'm not sure what Billings Clinic does. I'm, I, I, I'm gonna hope that they match what St. V's does, so, but I can only speak to St. V's just because of, that's where I am. Um, but hopefully you're gonna see more and more of this because it is a definite need and I've had people in the past say, well, why should I care about this, you know? I'm, I don't have babies in my family, or my children are done having their children, or whatever. Well, we all should care, because, you know, number one, this is our future, and number two, it's gonna cost the healthcare system and the education system a lot of dollars, which is your future tax dollars. I don't wanna depress you too much, so we won't talk about that just yet, but. Okay, so the thing to remember about substance use is a lot of times it's not just one substance. You know, think about how many people you've known that 
use drugs of some sort, you know, now I'm talking non-prescription, they'll probably also smoke, or probably also use alcohol, or probably use all of the above. So it can be a real challenge to um, identify and anticipate what these babies are, have been exposed to and may need. On top of that, there can be a lot of psychosocial factors. You know, uh, poor economic situation, poor nutrition. Uh, maybe it's a situation with some domestic abuse going on. Um, a lot of things can be going on. And, and so really, as nurses, I hope that, you know, it can be very draining to deal with these patients. Because I know some of you have probably worked as CNAs and you've had to deal with some of these patients coming in and they're probably not your favorites. But really what we need to do is see if this is really a symptom of something deeper going on in that person's life. You know, get, going back to the ACEs study, you know, the adverse childhood experiences, we look at those ACE scores, probably a lot of the people that are using, you know, illegal or even legal, you know, alcohol, cigarettes, but abusing them, there may be other deeper issues going on in their life. And that's why I always said, you know, even if you never liked psych nursing, which I think I've mentioned to you, it was not my favorite part of nursing school, but we'll use it in all areas where we work. You just, you, you know, for humans, we can't always um, leave that aside. So I guess this is from, you know, some thoughts from the March of Dimes, which is a wonderful organization that's supporting parents, but also supporting nursing education. And their statement was, you know, nurses should see drug use as a sign of deeper psychosocial issues, and they need to be prepared to provide support and care on the basis of an overall evaluation, and not, you know, really not make a value judgment. Um, an example is, you know, a lot of times, like, kids exposed to marijuana, and certainly we're seeing an explosion of that. In fact, just today I was looking at the newspaper online, the Billings Gazette, and it was showing, um, I think it might have been Colorado, someone was in a, a marijuana shop looking at all the gourmet chocolates, and, you know. So we're seeing a, a real increase in marijuana use, especially in pregnant women. Um, I think a lot of them, you know, it's thought that it's a great thing to use for morning sickness because it's natural. So, in fact, there was just a guy, I think it was, I don't remember where now, just filed a lawsuit against a, a prison because they're not allowed, he's, his That's argument is they're, yeah, they're not letting him use marijuana and he's saying that that's violating his religious rights and he's basing it on a verse in the Old Testament that says God created all herbs and greens for the good of, good of man. So I think he's gonna have a hard time winning that case, but I'm not as a lawyer. But uh, you know, but there is that thinking out there that rather than use prescription medications for nausea, a little marijuana. So we are seeing more pregnant women using it. Um, what we do know is those children have poor motor skills and often will have increased fearfulness or, you know, that social anxiety. 
So again, as the nurse, we just want to give our patients the information in that non-judgmental fashion. And sometimes that's, that's hard to do because especially when you work in an area where you see things go on and on. Interestingly, opiates have not been um, linked to fetal anomalies. You know, we talk about neonatal abstinence, and I'm gonna, I've got a slide here where we'll talk about the symptoms. But, you know, a lot of this is so new and so recent, you know, we don't have 20 years worth of data to look back. But, uh, you know, it's not looking, it's not something we would recommend, obviously. Okay, so um, screening for NAS. You know, as I said, the, the symptoms can be variable in infants and it can take varying amounts of time. So it's possible, you know, again, because we have some moms go home after 24 or 48 hours, or if it's a C-section, you know, 72 at the longest, we may not always be seeing those symptoms. Um, but again, if we've got a good history and, you know, hopefully the patient has felt comfortable letting her providers know, but as you know, they don't always. And there are situations where, you know, patients don't get prenatal care, come in, deliver, and they want to go home right away. Um, so we may not always be seeing it. And it can depend on, you know, what, what combination and how much and for how long. But again, this is from the March of Dimes. They said, you know, as nurses, asking those open-ended questions, and you all learned about that, you know, coming up through your nursing courses, but it's, it's really a skill that I've even um, reminded myself that I want to use. Rather than saying, you know, do you, do you drink too much wine, you know? Does your family drink alcohol on a regular basis? You know, kind of just opening the conversation up can be less threatening to patients and also it gives them the ability to just begin talking and developing that comfort level so they, they know that it's okay. Um, there's been talk in the past and honestly the last time was about two years ago in one of the counties surrounding Mont, uh, Billings about incarcerating pregnant women. Um, you know, locking them up if you find out, you know, they come in and they're test positive for drugs. Let's just put them in jail because then they won't have access to the drugs. And again, I'm not an expert on the, the penal system or the, the jail system, but I'm sure that, you know, watched. I guess I've watched enough movies, you know, it's probably still there. We know it's not totally foolproof, but we also know that if women fear being jailed, they're going to go underground and they're not going to seek care at all. So, um, as I said, there was a couple years ago, one of the county attorneys, that was something he was proposing, and there was a, a big outcry. Um, number one, you know, no one wants to be arresting pregnant women and hauling them off to jail, but number two, I don't think the jails want responsibility for the mom and the baby, and number three, that's not the best use of our care or our dollars in caring for these women. Right. 
Okay, so you should know this. So signs of NAS. Well, number one, the first tip-off is that high-pitched crying. Um, and you know, the nurses, if you've ever heard them talk about, and you can, you know, you, you've all heard those newborns cry. These are like those screeching, inconsolable, crying babies. It's the one where it's kind of like the, you know, the old saying of, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard. We don't have chalkboards anymore. And whiteboards, you don't quite get that. But it's that, that cry that gets your immediate attention, that it's not right. Or those babies that are excessively fussy, you can't console them. Uh, they're real shaky and jittery. We had um, one last year that one of the students identified. She was holding this baby, and this baby just kind of started twitching every so often. And at, by about two hours later, this child was extremely jittery. And uh, mom had not divulged her substance use, but then they went ahead and started checking, and, and that's, that's what it was. Um, these are the babies that don't sleep between feeds, that you can't console them. Oftentimes they'll, they'll present, they have a stuffy nose, or they're sneezing a lot. Okay, so sometimes that's the sign. Yawning a lot. Or these babies pour suck. So again, that's the reason why if, if baby's breastfeeding. I mean, obviously we often get a, a, a latch score to determine effectiveness of, of the breastfeeding, but it also, if they've got a poor latch score, poor suck, maybe there's something more going on that's leading to that. Or likewise, these are the babies that get that stiff. You, you know, these are not the cuddlers. Um, St. B's last year started a program of having um, volunteers come into the NICU. Were any of them there when any of you were in NICU? Mm -hmm. Yeah, holding babies? Yeah. Sharon, one of our admins, Sharon is a, a volunteer. Actually, um, there's a retired OBGYN doc. I just heard he's doing it now. He's a volunteer. So, um, oftentimes, these babies need, they don't need a lot of stimulation. I mean, a lot of the babies in NICU shouldn't be overstimulated because they're prematurity. But sometimes with these infants, they, they aren't either. And it, you know, I, I have played videos in the past but if you go on YouTube, and, and even if you just find a short one and look at, you know, the, the videos of these NAS babies, it is very difficult to look at them. And so think about being a nurse in a NICU if you've got a whole bunch of them. And, you know, you can imagine by the end of your shift, you're going to be pretty emotionally drained, as well as probably even more physically worn out. So. It is a, a challenge. Okay, so some other signs. Um, recurrent vomiting and diarrhea, which in newborns might be a little bit difficult because sometimes if they're vomiting, we think, oh, they're just spitting up. So you want to look at the pattern. Obviously, newborns often can have loose stools anyway, but you know, if, it's a, if the pattern is increasing. Um, poor weight gain after the fourth day of life. Again, that can be difficult to discern if we send mom home on day two, but that's why we wanna make sure everybody gets back for that 
two-day visit with the pediatrician. Or if you've got concerns, you know, and this is in any area you're working, don't be afraid to suggest, hey, should we have a community health nurse visit this patient? I was a, a maternal child community health nurse for two years. Um, you learn a lot, and I know that, again, a lot of people don't get too excited about community health. It, it's, but I will say it really gives you an insight when you have to go give medical care out in homes and you're out of your element and in the patient's element. It gave me a real um, appreciation for the challenges that a lot of our patients face. Excessive uh, rate of breathing, so to kipnic. Or sometimes these babies will have skin breakdown or irritations. Now again, uh, infants can be <coughs> more prone to, to skin rashes just because their skin is sensitive. Certainly any baby that has seizures. And on the NAS scoring tool, if they score eight or higher, then that is, that is a diagnosis. And my next slide, I took a picture of the scoring tool and hopefully, did everyone, maybe I'll get to it. Let's see, I've lost my mouse. Ah. Okay, that's a small snapshot, but these were up on the unit and it's again, so who worked with a nurse that was doing scoring on an infant? So what did you observe the nurse do? Um, it was actually on a baby. I think it had NAS. Okay. Um, super visibly shaky. And, uh, yeah, she was like yawning a lot. And her like little jaw would like come back up. She'd be like sh shaking. Yeah, almost that quivering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we did like a few NAS tests. Okay. And isn't it like, like either one score of like eight or like a couple scores of like six or seven or something? Uh -huh. Will like diagnose. So were the parents there? Yeah, the mom. Okay, and, and so that's the other thing is anytime the nurse wants to do NAS scoring, they need to have the parents involved. So they need to inform the parents and let them know. We did have a situation, and again, I don't remember if it was this fall or last spring, where the nurses wanted to do the scoring and the parents declined. They, they said no. So um, I'm not sure what the outcome was, but I know that happened on the day we were there. But anyway, um, so a lot of this, it will be incorporated into the care. You'll see the nurses scoring and then, you know, making appropriate plans for, you know, how they're going to help this infant through. I think they said in the NICU that they're going to update their scoring tool as well. Are they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's probably about time. You know, it's just like anything as, as something comes along and we learn more, it's usually a good time. So they have to have parent consent? They have to talk to the parents, yeah. Now, um, and again, this gets into, you know, some medical legal issues. I'm not always sure in terms of, you know, we don't drug test every mom and we can't, and by the way, this is a, FYI, because I learned this lesson as a young nurse, you can't drug test someone without getting their permission. But I, you can test the, the cord umbilical cord. They can test the umbilical cord.
record, but I know to draw blood from adults, you cannot do it without their permission. I did that as a young nurse because I was working in the ER and highway patrolman came in and said, hey, would you draw me a couple tubes of blood? And I said, well, sure, of course. And the patient was not conscious and I drew the blood and of course it was positive. And um, actually we couldn't, that was not legal. And so I got uh, subpoenaed to go to court and got grilled by an attorney. And I can tell you it was, not a pleasant experience. Like they wanted to go way back into my educational preparation and everything. So, so when we get into issues like this, you really want to be sure of what your hospital policy is, what the current legal status is, because things keep changing. And that's why I'm not 100% sure, but I do know that to do NAS scoring, they have to have parents' permission. Um, yeah, so right now if an infant scores eight or higher, on three occasions or 12 or higher on two occasions, um, then probably they're having withdrawal symptoms. And oftentimes these are the infants that are transferred to the NICU. And when we first started treating them, we were using uh, morphine. Now they're looking at, and they're using Subutex for some infants. And again, the idea is, is we're gonna get them through their time of withdrawal, gradually wean the doses off so that, you know, this infant can, you know, basically get off of everything. What is, uh, what'd you say, subutex? What is yeah. that, what class is that? Um, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the other name for it. It just escaped me. It's a drug that's used often for drug treatment. It's like methadone. And of course, I didn't even get into it on this slide, and it doesn't really apply here, but you know, now most all states are supplying Narcan to just about anybody that, you know, like firemen, policemen, healthcare, um, any of those people. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily be using, well, we may need to give an infant some Narcan if they're, you know, depressed enough at the time of, of birth. That, that would be a possibility. Um, so again, this comes uh, March of Dimes. The most significant factor when teaching parents to create change in their drug use is when we can help, as I've said, when we can help pregnant women make that connection. Now that's obvious to us because we're, we're nurses and we're all, you know, we're, we're smart and we know a lot. But a lot of times, you know, it's just like anything, when you're in the thick of something, you know, I had another nurse friend who used to say to me, denial is not just the river in Egypt. <laughs> I like that one. I like it when I can make you guys laugh a little bit. You know. Anyway, but it's true. Sometimes patients don't make that connection. And as I've said throughout the semester, pregnancy is one of those pivotal times in life where people will make changes they're more motivated to, you know, because they're bringing another human being into this world. And so we really kind of want to capitalize the, on that motivation if we can. Um, so we really want to help women see, you know, the effects. And it is interesting, in all the YouTube videos I've ever looked at, how many times a lot of those women will say, I didn't realize this was going to be so hard on my baby and they carry a lot of guilt 
because of it. So, you know, all the better if we can help them um, understand that earlier. Anybody in here from Washington State? Uh, my son went to college in Washington, and what does that have to do with anything? Well, I happen to know that every woman's bathroom you go into in the state of Washington on the paper towel holder, there are stickers that tell all women that smoking, you know, alcohol and probably other drugs can adversely affect the outcome of a pregnancy. Again, we all know that. But again, like I say, sometimes you've got to hear something numerous times and it finally clicks. So, um, I don't know. It must have been the result of a law passed at some point, but I know it's been that way as long as I've ever seen it. Okay, let me get to my next slide. Okay, so, um, you know, I think the other thing is we have to realize, like so many things, it's the patient that's got to be motivated to change. And um, sometimes that's really hard for us as healthcare providers to see that, not just in this specialty of nursing, but a lot of areas. You know, you see um, people making choices and you know then they arrive at our door needing care and that can be very difficult and so as future nurses I guess my my words of advice is it's hard not to become jaded um, but you know remember that you know somewhere in there this person was not always this way what led them to this point in life um, yeah, nurses don't have the power to cure anyone. I, I don't know if I agree with that, but no. Um, but we can be educators, supporters, and advocates. Okay, and sometimes we have to choose, are we going to be an advocate for mom or for baby? Sometimes you can't be the advocate for both. Um, but also educating ourselves is really important. And we want to treat these patients with respect, and as I said, sometimes that's really difficult, and you will see that. Again, uh, years ago when I worked in the ER, I think I might have told you guys this, but um, I was being oriented, and we got a call that someone who had swallowed an overdose was coming in on the ambulance and was going to require needing their stomach pumped. Anybody ever done that? Seen it? Well. Basically it is, it's a very, very large NG tube that gets put down so you can flush their stomach out. But what I always remember is the nurse who was gonna show me said, well make sure this really hurts when you do it. Make it really unpleasant so they won't wanna come back again. Now I told you I was not fond of psych, but I thought, wow, you really don't get this at all. You know, that, that really struck me and that made me very sad to hear a nurse say that. Um, but anyway, I think that's why I only lasted in the ER for about a year. So, um, you know, we just really need to be supportive of these patients, and again, I think it's great that in Montana, you know, this, that we're gonna start seeing more options for treatment and, you know, hopefully take away some of the, the fear of getting treatment. Um, so these are just some um, recommendations, and this has come about really for all patients. You know, we really need to limit the number of opioids given to patients. 
And that's why last year, St. V's started the, the ERAS, the Early Recovery After Surgery Program. And probably a lot of you that took care of C-section patients, you may not have ever even given them anything other than you know some ibuprofen. Prior to that, I can tell you, a lot of days at clinical, all I was doing was running in and getting Percocet because students weren't allowed to get that, still aren't, so I was always uh, getting it. Um, had really good results with that, and it's actually been trialed in other areas of medicine, so I think you're going to see less and less opioids uh, prescribed. Um, you know, addiction is considered a substance use disorder, and um, we all need more education, providers, patients, the public. They talk about the five C's of addiction, so it's craving, compulsive use, continued use despite harm, impaired control over your drug use and chronicity. You guys do not have to memorize this. I'm not going to ask you a test question, so I don't want anybody going home and memorizing the five C's, but, but just to appreciate. Um, Chronic opioid users oftentimes, no surprise, they're not the best users of contraception. And they also may develop very irregular menstrual cycles and, and then suddenly turn up pregnant and don't realize it and aren't getting prenatal care. So, you know, a lot of this goes hand in hand. Ah, there it is, subutexas buprenorphine. Okay. And um, it's now being thought that it gives better outcomes for babies. So we're starting to see units um, switching over to that. And so infants, less withdrawal, shorter hospital stays, larger head circumference. So again, um, you know, alcohol, drugs, you know, not good for fetal brain development. So. We really want to pay attention to that. And again, you know, sometimes things can appear normal now, but perhaps at two years old, this child may be delayed. Or, you know, first grade, they may be delayed. You know, we don't always see all those effects immediately. Um, you know, the thing about these drugs, a lot, the maintenance stuff, a lot of times it can be given outpatient but then we're not able to support the patient as, or supervise them as closely. That's the downside of you know, so many more things being done on an outpatient basis. But I want to make sure. Yeah, this is just more NAS. Yeah, oh, I want to talk about NAS treatment. So I want to, you do need to know this. So if you've got a baby with NAS, so what were they doing for the baby that you saw? that was an NAS baby, in terms of comfort for the baby? Um, she was just under like a heating heating lamp. Okay. The mom was taking subutex like during the pregnancy. Okay. And that's why the baby came out. Okay. So, like, she... okay. okay. So, oftentimes, um, you know, there's the priorities is skin to skin is real. I mean, it's important with all infants, but with these babies, and sometimes in NICU, you'll see their moms or dads doing skin to skin. I don't know if anybody observed that on their NICU day. Um, you know, breastfeeding, you know, again, that's, that's kind of a tough one because we know that it can be in the milk. 
Um, we just had a patient, I think it was one of the last clinical days, who um, was using marijuana, and they had recommended that she either stop the marijuana or not breastfeed, and she didn't want to do that, and so, you know, that was her decision um, to continue. But, you know, so we'd like, we, we know that breastfeeding is good, but, it's, it's a tough situation. Um, low stimulation. Sucking can be very comfortable to these babies. So these are the babies that may have pacifiers. Maybe you'll see them in the beds that rock. Um, you know, either wrap tightly or maybe not wrap tightly. You know, every baby, if they're hyperstimulated, yeah, so heat lamp maybe would be comforting to this baby. Low, um, low stress environment, and that's the great thing about NICU. You know, you've all been in there, you've seen the low lighting. Um, we try to keep it quiet in there for these babies. Um, and of course, any of the volunteers, they actually, who, the, the holders, I think that's what they're called, the baby holders, the swaddlers. Cuddlers. Cuddlers, cuddlers, yeah, I knew there was some name. You know, they all went through a specific orientation to learn. Um, you know, feeding, these may be poor feeders, so they may need to be fed more often. Um, sometimes low music can be comforting to these babies. We've actually, St. Lee's has a music therapist. Did she ever come over to Peds when you guys, when anybody was there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she'll come around. And she actually came over on Mother Newborn and saw a patient. So, um, yeah, so, it's really important. I mean, obviously, we tell all moms why they should not smoke around their babies, but this is a, a group that especially shouldn't. We know that smoking, you know, number one, it's not good for anybody, puts baby at higher incidence of SIDS or risk of SIDS. And then if this baby's already been exposed to other substances, the last thing they need is, is that. So, so again, we want to do a lot of really good education with with the parents. Um, okay, I guess that's it. Okay. Yes, let's run through genetics because, you know, I'm on a roll, man. We're going to finish it out. Now, this could be the challenge because I
So again, it depends on your comfort level with doing that. That, that gets into a, a lot of philosophical questions. But it is a possibility that um, parents can do if they know that there's something um, specific. So that's known as a, a, a PGID, pre-genetic implantation diagnosis, something like that. Remember with genetic testing, it can be predictive and it can say, um, you, you know, it can give you your risk. Um, again, it gets into, do you want to be tested depending on what the treatment may or may not be because some things, as you know, there's not a treatment. But again, that gets into why family history is so valuable. <coughs> and who should be guided in that direction. Um, not everyone wants to know this. I have a movie I used to show <coughs> in our class, but it doesn't fit in so well anymore. But I love it. There's a, a family in Chicago, and they happen to be uh, um, African-American. And I just love the one lady. Her sister has breast cancer and wants the whole family to be tested. <coughs> And this woman's philosophy is, oh, why should I go seeking more trouble? I got enough trouble every day. It's, it's the way she says it. It just it really makes you. It helped me understand why why people would would choose not to. So, okay. So this gets into a whole lot of um, review stuff. Again, I'm not going to include this on the test. But I want you just to, you know, this may come up on NCLEX, so I'm, I'm hoping I'm, I'm waking stuff up in your brain. Remember, we get two copies of every gene, and, um, or alleles, and if someone is homozygous, that means they have two copies of the same trait. Heterozygous is two different, okay? Um, Genotype. So when we talk about a genotype, that's the genetic makeup. So if you've got a patient that's an OB patient and she has the testing done, when her report comes back and you see the written report of the, the chromosomes, etc., that's the gen genotype. Okay. A phenotype is the observable expression. So this is my phenotype. I somehow got the gene. I happen to be one of the shortest females in my family. So my phenotype, I didn't get the, the genotype, I guess, or I got the genotype for being short. So, um, and then we talk about whether traits are dominant or recessive. If it's dominant, you only have to inherit it from one parent. If it's recessive, you get it from both parents. And actually, so back to podcasts again. I actually listened to a podcast a few weeks ago about um, Jewish people because they have, they were a very closed culture for a long time, so they have some very specific risk factors for certain genetic problems. And if they use a matchmaker, that sometimes has gone into the consideration is your genetic makeup because you don't want to marry someone else who has the same same trait. 
the, the BRCA mutation happens to be very dominant in Ashkenazi Jewish populations. And then it got off into why did this happen, and it goes way back to, to uh, anthropology stuff. So anyway, it's, it's, it was interesting. I was listening to it because of the genetic stuff. Okay, so uh, chromosomal abnormalities can occur during cell, you know, when, when <coughs> conception occurs and this baby is, is turning into, you know, from two cells to an infant. But it can be responsible for a, just a, a, some of the perinatal deaths. And that's why a lot of times if you happen to be working in OB and there is a, a, a death of an infant either, you know, pre pre-labor, during labor, or directly afterwards, sometimes the baby is sent off for genetic testing. Or as, as Nancy told you, she and her husband had had that testing done, and of course it got sent to the wrong place. So then it was redone um, to find out. So, um, and then when you see the report that comes back, so the karyotype, basically when you see 46XX, that's female, 46XY is male. Occasionally you'll see reports come back with a genetic problem where you might see a 46XXY or as an example there, 47XY. That's an abnormal karyotype. So, and that's just what it'll look like when they come back. Um, and interestingly, you know, the ends of our, here's our chromosomes, the ends of them are our telomeres, and actually there's been a lot of um, talk now about if your telomeres get shortened earlier in life, you can be at risk for more diseases. And things like smoking, environmental toxins, chronic illnesses, things like that. So I read an article in one of the nursing journals in the last year or two about ways to keep our telomeres long and healthy. Again, diet and exercise, decreasing our stress or managing our stress, because I don't know if we can decrease it. Um, again, this is a whole lot of information um, talking about abnormalities, and I'm not going to include this on the test, so I think we'll just go past this. This is just talking about some terms you might see. So sometimes you'll see a report come back if, if you work in OB where the patient, the, the infant has a, a translocation. And that's just an exchange of material between two chromosomes. Or sometimes there's a deletion on a chromosome. And um, yeah, this gets into a whole lot of stuff that we used to do when I did um, IVF and we did um, the patients who did IVF, if they hadn't done genetic testing ahead of time, sometimes wanted it done prior to um, continue or deciding if they were going to continue on with the pregnancy. So, um, and then we talk about inversions and that's when they get flipped around. And the reason I mentioned that is the chromosomes have been rearranged and actually that can cause problems. If it's on a specific chromosome, it's responsible for problems with infertility and miscarriage. So again, if you see someone coming in for infertility 
and they've worked them up, sometimes it might be appropriate that you would do some genetic studies on that individual. But again, this is pretty specialized and not stuff you guys are likely to see. Um, sex chromosome abnormalities in females, the most common one is Turner syndrome, and it's where there's a missing X chromosome. And so how that's expressed, so that would be the genotype. The phenotype then would be juvenile genitalia. They don't, they don't ever develop as adult genitalia. Undeveloped ov ovaries, a shorter neck that may even look kind of webbed, that lymphedema of the hands and feet. Um, and the paternal X or Y is lost. In males, uh, a similar syndrome is Klinefelter syndrome. And again, I'm not going to include this on the test, but again, you may see real small testes. They're usually infertile and may have some um, learning disabilities. So, you know, this just talks about patterns of transmission. So in OB, a good example is cleft palate. It can be a combination of a genetic, but also environmental influences. And that's the thing, you know, again, getting back to these twins that were just born with the CRISPR technology, or developed as a result of CRISPR technology, is the concern is not only did, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of moral questions that came up, but probably whatever genetic mutations these individuals, these, these twin girls have, that, that's now being entered into the gene pool if they reproduce, if they're able to reproduce. And in fact, the last little bit I heard is there's thinking that as a result of this mutation, they may be at higher risk for some other illnesses. So uh, yeah, it kind of goes back to how much should we mess with mother nature. Um, but anyway, it can be multifactorial or it can be a single gene. That, that is a result. So again, lots of information. I'm, I'm not going to send you guys home to memorize all this because we're, we're glossing over it so quickly. Um, yeah, let's, let's go through these pretty quickly. We talked about dominant and recessive. Um, sometimes you hear inborn errors of metabolism. Those are very rare. But an example is PKU or albinism. So individuals who are albinos. Okay, so let's just, I wanna give you a bigger appreciation. I know this is kinda of hard to read. Um, so when might you see genetics applied in OBGYN? So I already talked about preconception. So in in vitro that preconception, pre, it's pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. That's what it is. I got my letters mixed up. So in other words, parents would go have an in vitro and then have each embryo tested and if one of them or some of them have a genetic 
abnormality, they would choose not to use those embryos. So what happens to those? Well, at this point in the world, they're all, most of them are probably sitting in a cryobank somewhere. You can, you can um, freeze them. And I think that's one of those big unanswered questions. Um, in some countries, they can be used for research purposes. In the US, I do not believe that they can. So, um, antenatal, so again, those tests we offer to, to pregnant women. Neonatal, an infant is born with what appears to be a problem. And I know we've had one or two this semester where the parents, they were, um, the pediatrician discussed it with them and they agreed that yes, let's do some genetic testing. By the way, so you know, all babies, as you know, we call it the PKU test, you know, where their heel is poked and we get the five round spots of blood. In every state, the number of tests varies. In Montana, I believe it's 62 different conditions that we test for. Some of them are genetic, some of them are just a result of something that went wrong during the pregnancy. But that is the state law that every infant must be tested. So again, if you've got a home delivery and someone who's not seeking care, those can fall through and you may not, not catch them. So again, another reason we like to have everyone um, getting care. Childhood, you may see it, you know, onset of something new. Same thing with adolescents, adults. In older adults, where you're often gonna see it uh, used, as I said, in oncology care in, in an adolescent through adult, any age. Um, but in older adults, sometimes finding out they have a specific genetic mutation, their younger family members uh, can be informed and may want to make some, some different life plans based on whatever it is. So again, you know, we always talk about nursing as an art and a science. And so again, what's the nurse's role? You actually can get a specific certification as a certified genetics nurse. It's kind of hard to do here because Montana's not big enough. Um, there is Shodare Hospital in Helena is our um, hospital that does, has a genetics lab. But otherwise, in Montana, we don't see a lot. But if you're in a bigger area, you know, bigger city where they're going to start seeing more patients, you may have a role as a, or a job there as a nurse. And so really, a lot of it is being the educator, but also the support person for families and keeping up on all of it. And it's, it's about impossible. Um, I can tell you that even physicians don't, don't even keep up with all of it. Billings now, we do have a genetics counselor at both hospital systems, and they're really the go-to person. And patients do not need a referral to go see a genetics counselor. They can just call up and make an appointment and go themselves. And I think that as nurses, sometimes it's important that we give that resource to, to our patients because they may not always realize that. And some providers are really good about it and others it's just not on their radar. So um, again, it's important to, to be that, that referral source. And the thing too you'll, find, you'll see is, you know, some people have had genetic testing and they find out something and family members can have real different responses. You know, just think about your own family. Um, not that I expect anybody to share, 
but some people want to know but a lot of people really don't want to know so um, it's an interesting dynamic but uh, also again getting people referred to the right resources you know there's websites but for instance with infants all these NICU babies you saw on uh, well those of you that had um, clinical on Wednesday the March of Dimes person Jen was there March of Dimes has been a huge support to to parents and so you know just getting um, families hooked into that or helping them you know connect with the right person to get with so, I love this quote. The past suggests what can be, not what must be. It shows not all of what is necessary, but some of what is possible. And so I guess that's a kind of a, a wordy way of saying, yeah, your genetics are only a part of you. And just because you've inherited something, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that that's 100%. So I think as a nurse, it's important to help our, our patients understand that. So, okay, quarter to four. Anybody need a stretch? Okay. So, I um, have been looking at the exam. And...
Mark. Was that what you said? I could, I could sort of read your lips. Okay, yeah, yeah, hydration. So again, and if someone gets dehydrated, so think about effects on mom, effects on baby. Okay. Um, I'm going to warn you, I have some questions where I'll give you a little scenario, and it's going to ask you to choose a nursing diagnosis. Everybody at this point should be able to do that. I have... Um, one question, just one, I might add another one, asking you to do a drug calculation. Okay. And it's, it's actually a fairly simple one. Okay. I, might, I might throw in another one if I, I gotta count up my questions. Um, some basic questions on genetics. Yes, so do you need a calculator or is it like more? I don't think you'll need a calculator. I really don't. I mean, if someone really needs one, I'll let you use one, but I, I try not to make it too, too involved. Yes? Do you select all that apply? I did put a few of those in because you will see those on the NCLEX. So, oh, and then the Women's Health Lecture. So all, you know, we'll talk again about what are the main Think about what I emphasized. What were the main symptoms of that time of life? What are some of the treatments? Um, osteoporosis, who's at risk? What are some of the treatments? How many questions did you say in genetics? Oh, I don't know, maybe three. I don't know, I, haven't, I didn't count them up specifically. But you don't have to go memorize all those terms. It's more um, just, yeah, like, I don't know if I've said it, but the Human Genome Project, it's now mapped about 99.9% .9 of all our genes and found out that all of us on Earth share like a huge, huge portion of genes. So even though we all look different, we're all connected in a lot of ways. Let's see, I'm trying to think what else. What questions do you guys have for me? I have one. Okay. Did we need to memorize like the, um, oh shoot, what was it? It was like the, like, you need this many carbs per day, you need this many servings of fruits, this many servings of You vegetables. should have a, under an appreciation of Good nutrition, yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember specifically, but I, you know me, I love to throw in a nutrition question here and there. Now, as I said, a lot of the information you've seen, so postpartum hemorrhage, that was the first thing we talked about in this class. Mm -hmm. But now you've seen that, you know, who's at higher risk, a diabetic, uh, someone with preeclampsia, so there may be a question, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna ask you something about postpartum hemorrhage because, you know, I try to, I feel like, you know, you, I, I have what, seven minutes left to, to keep you in here and, and cram some more knowledge in your head. But there's certain things I really want you to take away from, from this course. You know, again, not everybody's gonna be an OB nurse, but 
there are certain big concepts you should should all be able to to relate to and I hope all of you going forward now that when you get to the hospital next semester med surgeon if there happens to be a pregnant woman on the unit you're going to have a level of comfort that you maybe didn't have six months ago I really hope so if so then I feel I've accomplished my goal so that was a long answer wasn't it yeah, sorry, I can get thank going. Thank you. No, thank you. Okay, any other questions? The neonatal loss lecture. Okay, there will be some questions on loss and grief. More so, again, uh, possibly some nursing diagnosis or the realm of how can a nurse be an advocate and a support to patients who undergo that. If you feel that you need more, there is a section on loss and grief in your textbook, and right now I can't remember exactly where it's at. So I always want to say chapter three, three, but that's genetics. It's the last chapter. Last chapter, thank you. But mostly what they talked about, you, you should be able to answer the questions. So, so yeah, there is a lot of units on this test, but I try to construct it of taking the points that I emphasized on each each lecture and structure my questions around that material. You know, I don't try to go find some weird, obscure little thing that you might not ever need to know again. So I'm not going to guarantee that for NCLEX, but that's why NCLEX review courses are a good thing. So. Yes, ma'am. And this is also 50 questions, multiple choice. Yeah, it'll be 50 questions, you have the full two hours. So, yeah, and I, I looked at it over the weekend, and, and I look, you know, I have, I, I change it around every time based on what I emphasized in lecture recovered, but, but really that's, that's kind of the high points. Okay, so before you all run off, This is my fond farewell to tell you that I truly have loved teaching guys. I'm doing better. I usually get kind of emotional and tears, so I'm doing better. But I just want to say um, I think you all have a good future ahead of you in nursing. I want you to know it has provided me with a life that I never envisioned, both professionally and personally. So it's part of my passion about teaching nursing. But more importantly, as I've gotten older, I have had some um, big issues in my life that I had to deal with, some health issues, and I'm happy to say I'm healthy. And so I really do. I believe go out and enjoy every day. And some days it might be five minutes, but remember, find those five minutes, because I guarantee you there will be days you're going to come home from work and think, I can't do this job another day. I can't give another day. But you know what? Recharge your batteries and keep giving because the world needs our good nurses from MSU. So thank you all. I have really enjoyed class. And I will see you guys on, no, I'll see half of you on Wednesday. So any questions about Wednesday at all? Okay, I'll see you in Absinthe Wednesday.
Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. Thank you.